Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is an iHeart Original. It's the 4th of July in Haley, Idaho, and the town's residents are lining the streets. Although, admittedly, the streets aren't that big, so it doesn't take many people to accomplish that. Haley is a small town. It's got a population of about 5,000. And on this sunny Independence Day in 1995, the residents are probably getting more commotion, more action than they've seen all year. Every year we had a nice 4th of July parade. Wayne Adair is among those watching from the sidelines. Wayne is the news editor of the Wood River Journal, one of the papers of record in this part of Idaho. And while he's standing there taking in the sights, he sees something in the parade that's never quite left his mind. It's Bruce Willis. Die Hard Bruce Willis. Moonlighting Bruce Willis. Planet Hollywood Bruce Willis. A guy who makes $20 million a movie. He was in the parade riding this big, beautiful, probably a $100,000 horse. You know, he kind of joined the parade riding right down the middle of Main Street. And literally, the middle of Main Street. Bruce Willis is not only in the parade, he's leading the parade, dressed as a cowboy. It's not like Bruce Willis was a Western star, though, not like Clint Eastwood or John Wayne. A tough guy, sure, but Bruce Willis grew up in New Jersey. I can't remember if he had a cowboy hat on, but it seemed like it was, you know, kind of Western-y. I mean, he had cowboy boots, the best I remember. Like a grand marshal, Willis waves to the crowd, turning his attention from one side of the street to the other. And the people are eating it up. He was having a hell of a good time. You could tell from his body language and from his smile. And, you know, he was waving to the crowd like a homecoming queen. And uh, our photographer got a really nice image of him. We put it on the front page. But Wayne isn't that impressed. 
Not by Willis, anyway. I mean, I enjoyed looking at the horse more than I looked at Bruce Willis. It was just such a beautiful creature. Now, there's probably a level of celebrity where someone feels diminished leading a small-town parade. A kind of, has it come to this, melancholy. But that's not what's happening here. Willis could not be happier. The smile, the trademark smirk that's familiar to hundreds of millions of people, is genuine. He's totally in his element, totally confident in his status as one of the biggest box office attractions in the world. One hit, like 1994's Pulp Fiction, follows another, like 1995's Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is in theaters at that very moment. There's almost a kind of irony in someone as famous as Willis ambling along on horseback in Idaho. Would Sylvester Stallone have done this? Would Harrison Ford? Would Meryl Streep be seen riding a Clydesdale in a town with just a handful of traffic lights? Probably not. But Bruce Willis isn't here to preserve the mirage of the Hollywood actor, which is, in these pre-Instagram days, something that still feels larger than life. At age 40, he's not worried about denting his reputation in the movie business, which has never been stronger. He's John McClane, one of the most iconic action heroes of the late 20th century. He's married to Demi Moore, making him one half of the classic 90s power couple trope. There's not a street in America Willis could walk down, or gallop down, without being recognized. But here in Haley, Willis believes he's found the one place in the world he can go to be, well, himself. And Haley has welcomed him with open arms. But when Wayne Adair published that photograph of Willis on the horse on the front page of the Wood River Journal, maybe that's when both Willis and Haley realized things weren't going to be easy. We got a call the day that was published from one of his angry attorneys saying we had no right to publish his image because he based his living based on selling that image. And uh, Dan Gorham filled at that call. On paper day, I was not there in the morning. Dan, paraphrasing the conversation, said, you know, when somebody rides down the middle of Main Street on a horse in the 4th of July parade, we can take their picture if we damn well want to. And that's the last we heard of it. Yeah, not exactly. For Bruce Willis, Haley was the thing he had been searching for since he became a household name. A place to escape. A place he could mold and shape to fit his needs. To make it not just a small Idaho town, but a place worthy of being the home of a global movie star. He found it in tiny Haley, Idaho. Population 5,000. Well... 5001. For iHeartRadio, I'm Dana Schwartz. Welcome to Haleywood, an iHeart original podcast. On my podcast, Noble Blood, I tell the true stories of historical royals. This series is a little different, a few centuries and an ocean apart. It's a story of Hollywood royalty about a man who, for the better part of two decades, had millions of people lining up for his movies, 
making him one of the highest paid actors in the world. And about someone who was a brand, the everyman action star who could seamlessly switch from firing machine guns to intimate character dramas. A man who got so famous, he ran out of places to just be Bruce. Until he came to Haley. What happened next is something the people of Haley have never been eager to talk about. Until now. It's a strange story about Hollywood and identity, the need for privacy and the trappings of ego, and much, much more. Episode 1, His Own Private Idaho. Of all the places near Sun Valley, Idaho, Haley is the most serene. Cars don't speed. People don't walk too briskly. Depending on where you are, the only noise you hear would be the gentle current of the Big Wood River. Some places can seem idyllic, but only in your imagination, only when the mood is just right. Haley's not like that. It's the real thing. The town was founded in the late 1800s by John Haley, a gold prospector, who thought that the area would soon be a hub of mining and transportation. And that's what happened. For a while, Haley was full of blue-collar workers who got their hands dirty and then closed the local bars. Businesses catered to the miners. Then the mining gave way and only families remained. By the early 90s, 1990s, it was the kind of town where, when you turn onto Main Street, you see mountains, where you'd half expect to see Bob Ross putting the finishing touches on the scene, where one of the landmarks is a museum holding one of the world's largest collections of political campaign buttons, where most of the residential streets are lined with trees and homes are set 25 feet from the street to keep their occupants safe where people at the diner know you and you know them, and probably their siblings and parents and kids too. When you hear the phrase small town values, someone is thinking of a place like Haley. Its main street was Hallmark movie quaint, with a surprising amount of traffic thanks to the Sun Valley Ski Resort, a kind of alternative to Aspen, about 15 miles away. A lot of people would go through Haley, but not many stopped. If they did, they'd see a lot of historic buildings made of brick, some still with tin ceilings. An old bar, still home to career drinkers, stood tall. Nearby, a rundown movie theater, open since the 1930s, but in dire need of renovation. A community planner once described Haley as being just one brushstroke away from being vibrant like a painting that needs just one more color to come to life. Or maybe, someone with a vision. That's what made 1994 such an interesting year. That was when a number of properties around town that had been sitting dormant or ignored for years began to rumble with activity. Someone was buying them. That old miner's bar, the Mint, was picked up. So was the building next to it, which used to house Mama Riley's Pizza. So was the rundown movie theater. Other commercial buildings followed. Some promising, but empty lots, too. 
it was clearly a concerted effort to acquire choice pieces of Haley. But for what purpose? No one knew. A cursory search revealed that the company behind the purchases had a strange name. Here's Wayne Adair. We kept hearing that a corporation named Ixnay, I-X-N-A-Y, was making offers to, to buy some properties right on Main Street. And we couldn't find out who was the force behind Ixnay. The Ixnay Investment Trust. That's the pig Latin version of Nix, which means to put a stop to something. It was kind of strange. Everyone in Haley was used to knowing everyone else's business. The fact that Ixnay was a mystery was, well, a mystery. Rumor had it that Kmart was after some of the lots. A month went by, and then two. Haley wondered if they would soon be overrun by national chain stores. Goodbye, Main Street. What Haley needed was someone who could sniff out the truth, someone who could peel back the layers of bureaucratic red tape, someone who could figure out who was behind Ixnay. This was a job for Wayne's top gun, C.J. Karamarjan, reporter for the Wood River Journal. He was just a bulldog at, at, at going after the stories. And uh, he did some really outstanding work for a you know, small-town newspaper. Kara Margin worked the phones and came to an unlikely suspect, a guy named Joe McAllister, a relatively recent transplant to the area. McAllister was behind Ixnay. For what purpose, Kara Margin wasn't quite sure. But the acquisitions were definitely newsworthy. Someone was looking to invest in Haley in a big way. The denizens of Haley were talking. It was the kind of diner and coffee shop talk that the town hadn't enjoyed since Bruce Willis bought a home there a few years prior. Willis's private home was in the housing subdivision known as the Flying Heart Ranch. Flying Heart Ranch was a place between two mountains. A river literally ran through it. With his wife Demi Moore and a growing family, Willis had escaped to Haley to avoid the spotlight cast on the mega-famous. Willis was a huge star thanks to a hit detective show, Moonlighting, and then the Die Hard films. So a quiet house in the mountains to get away from it all? Who doesn't want that? He was just outside of town. Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure I'd call it a mansion, but it probably was, was close to one. And uh, I've never been one who's starstruck. I wouldn't walk across the street to meet a, a movie star. But I liked his uh, TV series, Moonlighting. I love Die Hard and some of his other movies. And I, well, Bruce Willis is here. That's kind of fun. He wasn't in the news much for a couple of years. He just was living there. Now, reporter C.J. Karamarjan was on the trail of Haley's next big story. The Ixnay property grab. But Joe McAllister was elusive. He wouldn't say much of anything. Then Karamarjan noticed something. Something big. C.J. Uh, got some paperwork on Ixnay and noticed uh, that there was a mailing address attached to the company. And he did a little uh, 
research and realized that the the address for the company was the same post office box that uh, the Willis's had. So, you know, put two and two together and you got a pretty solid four there. Bruce Willis was the one on the spending spree. This was unusual. Sun Valley definitely attracted celebrities, some of whom bought seasonal or permanent homes in the area. Arnold Schwarzenegger had a place nearby. So did Clint Eastwood. But that's all they did. They bought homes. Not old bars. Not empty lots. Not vacant drugstores. So what exactly was Willis doing? Margin tried to dig deeper, but he couldn't get anywhere, couldn't breach the wall of silence surrounding Haley's most famous resident. Then suddenly, he didn't have to. Dan Gorham got a call. He was the paper's editor and publisher. Margin's phone rang too. It was Bruce Willis. But instead of explaining what he was doing, He tried to get them to lay off the story, to brush aside the fact that Bruce Willis was becoming Haley's premier real estate investor. The Wood River Journal wasn't going to do that. Bruce Willis, once a quiet resident of Haley, was now, suddenly, improbably, a developer. Not only that, he had an entire company devoted to his business interests in Haley, a company that had seemingly materialized out of nowhere. And he had a growing staff attending to all of it. It had been happening right under Haley's collective nose. Willis did let a few things slip out. He told Gorham he didn't want to live his life in the public eye, that he had moved to Haley to avoid exactly that. Willis also told Gorham that, while he understood the interest, he didn't want to be price-gouged by sellers who would bilk the movie star. However, you know, he was buying properties right on Main Street, and he was going to have to go to the Planning and Zoning Commission and and, uh, the City Council for, you know, for any kind of approval. So uh, we felt it was our duty, our journalistic responsibility to let our readers know uh, exactly who was buying property on Main Street. And uh, I think he was less than happy with us over that. Willis and the Wood River Journal would soon have a dust-up that made the Caramargin incident seem quaint in comparison. It makes you wonder what exactly happened to Bruce Willis that made him so reluctant to deal with the press. And why was he so insistent on Haley's reporters staying out of his business? There's an answer. Maybe not the answer, but an answer nonetheless. And it involves Tom Hanks being just a little bit of a jerk. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. A couple years before Willis began what would grow into a love affair with Haley, he had already decided he wasn't going to be overly cooperative with the press. Stardom had put him in the sights of the tabloids. Reporters seemed to want to know who he was sleeping with, not who he'd be working with. His transition from being anonymous to famous had happened virtually overnight once Moonlighting premiered in March 1985. The show was a hit, but Bruce seemed completely unprepared for the scrutiny that accompanied being a successful actor. The media had made a big deal of his relationship with Sybil Shepard, his Moonlighting co-star. Moonlighting wars, jealous set turns into battleground, that kind of thing. The rumors sold papers and magazines. Willis estimated he was on a tabloid cover at least once a week. People enjoyed reading about Bruce Willis being a jerk, even if virtually all of it was embellished or made up. Bruce Willis's shocking arrest, the untold story. Bruce Willis and X-rated actress. Bruce Willis and Miami Vice gal in new romance. Pals warn, he'll break your heart. Rather than cope with the press, it became easier to ignore it. He felt the media sometimes made actors a target, that there was a certain time when it became someone's turn to be cut down a peg. For Willis, it came with Hudson Hawk, a crime caper musical he released in 1991. That's right, a musical starring Bruce Willis. Willis played a cat burglar who enjoyed a little singing during his art heist. Willis helped conceive of the story and even helped write the theme song. His producer was Joel Silver, who had made Willis a box office star with the Die Hard films. And Willis loved shooting the movie, mostly because while on location in Hungary, no one really knew who he was. But the director, Michael Lehman, complained that his ideas would be challenged or vetoed by Willis, who wielded so much influence in Hollywood that even a director would have to defer to him. At one point, Willis insisted his character, Hudson Hawk, needed a pet monkey named Little Eddie. No one else really wanted the movie to have a monkey, but Willis wouldn't let it go. So producers decided that Willis's character, Hudson, had a monkey, past tense. The monkey was never shown on camera because it turns out Little Eddie had been murdered while Hudson was in prison. So yeah, you can maybe see where this might be going. 
One source on set said that Willis thought he was making a hip MTV-style movie. But it was really more of an homage to the fast-talking caper comedies of the 1940s. He had trouble describing it in interviews. It was, he said, a film that needed to be experienced more than explained. Yo, five film. Oh, did I miss anything? <laughs> Gates tries to blackmail me. You ask me, did I miss anything? Gates gets killed. You say, did I miss anything? I bet you went up to Mrs. Lincoln at the Ford Theater and said, how was the show? Did I miss anything? No one felt like they missed anything with Hudson Hawk. Critics were unkind. It flopped at the box office, making just $17 million against a $50 million budget. Today, it has a score of just 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. To Willis, it seemed like there had been a concerted effort by the media to curb his stardom. It would happen with Kevin Costner and Waterworld, and to Arnold Schwarzenegger in Last Action Hero. The press seemed to relish those moments, and Willis resented them for it. They'd cut him before, too, during the fallout from the bonfire of the vanities. The film, released in 1990, starred Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, and Willis, all three of them actors at the top of their games. Seemed like a recipe for a hit. Bonfire was an adaptation of Tom Wolfe's novel about greed and corruption among the powerful and protected class in New York's high society. Willis played Peter Fallow, a predatory tabloid reporter, a not very subtle jab at his adversaries in the press. When Willis was asked why he took the part, he'd shoot back, why do you think? Oh, excuse me. I haven't introduced myself, have I? My name is Peter Fallon. I am a writer. But you know that already. Unless you haven't read a newspaper or seen a television in the last few months, you know exactly who I am. But despite how well-regarded the novel was, some people considered it too complex to be adapted. They warned it might even be unfilmable. And it looks like they were right. The film was a disappointment, blown out of the water during the holiday season by Home Alone. To be fair, every movie was blown out by Home Alone, but still. It was a black mark for all involved, and Willis was no exception. But he had reason to regret the film beyond its box office. The movie's director, Brian De Palma, had allowed a journalist named Julie Salomon unprecedented access to observe the production from casting to release. It was an opportunity rarely afforded to the media, because, well, filmmaking can be messy. Salman got to see it all and report on it all. All the creative tension, all the tumultuous exchanges. Salomon even captured a moment between Willis and Hanks, who were both watching playback of a scene on a monitor. Hanks, with some apparent glee in his voice, made a show of pointing out when Willis smirked in the scene. It was the same smirk that had made him such a hit in Moonlighting and Die Hard and in other films. Hanks playfully pointed it out. There it is, that big shitting grin, he said. It was not a very Tom Hanks thing to say. A brooding Willis said nothing. The smirk was a Willis trademark. 
it was sacrosanct. Tom Hanks was reducing it to a crutch. Salomon's book was released in 1991. It was titled The Devil's Candy. A great book, The Bonfire of the Vanities, had become a bad movie, and, thanks to Salomon, a bad movie had inspired a pretty good book. It was well-received by most everyone, except Willis. He hated the fact Salomon had observed him, had criticized him. He hadn't even granted her an interview, and he still got bad press. If he was press-shy before, Salomon may have made him press-loathing. Hollywood loathing. Even when he consented to an interview, he usually regretted it. And so did the journalist. I've done a thousand interviews, and I would say there's a handful, four or five, that were just a complete nightmare. Bruce was one of those nightmares. That's Martha Frankel. Martha writes books now, but in the 1990s, she was focused on entertainment journalism, and she was good at it. She wasn't fawning. She wasn't insulting either. She was just doing her job, and she laid out what she perceived as a mutually beneficial transaction. I used to say this when I would sit down with somebody. I'd say, listen, here's how it works. I'm getting paid five grand. You're getting paid five million. My job to make you seem even cooler than you are so more people will go and you can make six million next time. So let's just have a conversation. This is what I would say. And most people were like, that sounds great. Bruce Willis did not think it sounded great. When Movie Line magazine sent Frankel to interview Willis in Europe in 1996, it was the beginning of one of the most torturous experiences of Frankel's professional career. I went to England to do a story about him. And like I thought we were going to be like, you know, it was going to be cool. We had this history and... You know, we knew a lot of people in common, and a lot of my friends are casting directors and actors, and he wanted no part of that. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted no part of it. I was in a spa in Windsor waiting for him. Supposed to be there one night. I was there for nine. Frankel stood vigil as Willis seemed to weigh whether or not he really wanted to be interviewed. I had the two bitchiest editors in magazine history. So they would spend fortunes sending you around the world in the hope that you hated your subject. So, I mean, I kept calling them every day and saying, I don't think this interview is happening. I think I should come home. And they were like, nope, you're staying. Because even if you never get to interview him, that'll be the story. Martha persisted, tried different tactics to appeal to Bruce. It was raining, pouring, and there was no good food to eat. And I was stuck in this spa. I mean, all I did was swim. So, and every day I would write to him and say, let's do it today, let's do it today. And I had some funny ideas. I thought, you know, he has a big entourage. He always had a very big entourage. And I was there all alone. So I said, why don't we just sit down, me, you, and your people, and we'll play poker for an hour. The interview will be over. It'll be a great interview. You know, I'll make you sound even funnier than you are. He said, no. We have a lot of people in common. I don't want to talk about that. So we really were at odds. Finally, after well over a week, Willis agreed to meet. When I do an interview on somebody, I watch everything. And so when I went to meet Bruce, I had seen all the clunkers and all the good stuff. You know, the Die Hard movies are fantastic to watch. They take you to a place you've never been before. And so I wanted to talk to him about that. And he, he didn't want to talk about that. He didn't really want to talk about anything, which is funny after you've waited nine days in a spa in Windsor. 
I did the interview and I, he made them shut down the restaurant and the hotel and then he like, oh, it's just a drag and he wasn't fun and he wasn't funny and I know he's all of those things. You know, I had seen him in action. I know he can be that. He was, you know, very serious and he just kept telling me how, you know, Hudson Hawk was a great movie and this one. I was like, Bruce, I, you know, I saw it. You can't convince me of that. And it was really the, one of the first interviews that I just put it into the story and said, I didn't like this guy. He didn't like me. We didn't have fun. Willis was touchy and evasive. He kept asking her to turn off the tape recorder for him to explain what went wrong with Hudson Hawk, as though there had been potential for anything to go right with Hudson Hawk. Naturally, Frankel's editors at Movie Line loved it. They weren't unhappy that it went like that. I mean... I was, because I want to like the people I interview. I want them to do well. I want to root for them. And there was no way I could root for Bruce Willis after this. For months and years afterward, people would approach Frankel with the idea that she and Willis were rivals, enemies. They wanted her to talk about what a jerk Bruce Willis was. Poked and prodded on, she'd sometimes indulge them. He had, after all, kept her waiting for nine days and then stonewalled her. And there was something else that bothered her. So I was already annoyed at him when he walked in. And then he made them shut the restaurant. He made them shut it down for two hours during dinner service so that nobody would come over for his autograph. And then he didn't throw 300 bucks on the table for the waiter. So I did. So I was already like, this is not okay. You know, I want rich people to be more generous than not rich people. And Bruce, okay, he wants the restaurant closed, I get it, then pay the guy for the two hours that he missed. He didn't have that attitude, so we were really at odds. But you know what was the best thing? He walked in and out of that hotel and nobody said a word to him, nobody recognized him. So it's kind of important, this part. Because even when people weren't looking at Bruce Willis, he could feel eyes on him. He felt the need to get away, felt the need to keep to himself. All of that would fuel what would happen in Haley. When journalists plowed forward, well, that's when Haley was exposed to another side of Bruce Willis, the one where he's most definitely not smirking. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. When word of Willis's real estate acquisitions got out, a lot of Haley residents were excited by the possibilities. There hadn't been any radical changes to Haley in decades. Some people thought Haley's buildings were quaint. Others thought quaint was just another word for old, decrepit. Now someone with a singular vision was snapping up properties and professing his love for the town. It was like having a benefactor. Or, as one columnist put it, Haley had found a sugar daddy. A few people had some fun with it. A local high school paper ran a cartoon that depicted Main Street as Planet Haleywood, a nod to Willis's involvement in the Planet Hollywood restaurant franchise. Another paper, the Idaho Mountain Express, ran an editorial that cheekily suggested Willis should just buy the entire town as a holiday present to himself. That got the paper's publisher an angry phone call. Willis did sometimes talk to the press, but he usually had to be angry first. Things came to a head on that front when the Wood River Journal ran a story that Bruce Willis didn't care for. Not a bit. We did a story, and I can't remember the exact year, but I'd been there for several years by then. Wayne Adair, again, editor of the Wood River Journal. The Forest Service would lease uh, land to private individuals. They've been doing it for decades. It was right on a lake. I think it was Redfish Lake, a big, beautiful, natural lake. But somehow Willis got one of these leases, and he built a really nice uh, home on the, right on the lake. This was another Willis property, an escape a little further up the road from his escape. And we were doing a story because there was a lot of discussion in Washington that they wanted to drastically increase the prices that people had to pay for these leases. Bruce Willis, I'm sure, didn't blink twice about a a price hike, but the normal people, they were concerned about it. So the Wood River Journal wrote about it. We did an article about the, uh, about the proposal to increase the uh, lease rates up there. And we took a picture of the outside of Bruce Willis's house and we published it. We didn't identify it as Bruce Willis's place. We just used it to show that these were not all just tar paper shacks up there where there was uh, some really nice high-end residences up there. Uh, of which this one was the, by far the, the nicest. The cabin could have been anyone's. There were a total of 23 cabin owners who leased property at Pettit Lake on the Forest Service land, including Willis. There was nothing about his cabin that was demonstrably Willis-esque. His name wasn't on a plaque out front or anything. But Bruce Willis stormed into the offices of the journal, angry. His privacy had been violated. He was enraged. 
the fact that we didn't identify it uh, didn't uh, assuage the matter whatsoever. And what little advertising he did with us, he canceled. I'm sure he, if you ask him today, he would, you know, still have a chip on his shoulder about it. I know what you're thinking. What did Bruce Willis need to advertise in the Wood River Journal? It's coming. Promise. But for now, the Wood River Journal had broken its unspoken vow to protect its famous residents. Of course, losing any adv- advertising is, is something that you don't want to have happen, but you have to have journalistic integrity. And if, if uh, somebody wants to cancel their advertising because of a story you did, if it's a story that was solid and it's a story you stand by, it's sorry you feel that way, better luck next time. Willis also phoned reporter C.J. Karamarjan and said something pretty strange. Willis said that he heard the reporter had, quote, a vendetta against him, like they were feuding families in The Godfather. But Karamarjan argued he was just doing his job, just digging up information that was in the public interest. Information like just what exactly Bruce Willis was planning for Haley. No one had a vendetta against Willis. He was investing in real estate and leasing federal land. Bruce Willis seemed to take reporting on his public activities very, very personally, and with a dramatic flair. The tension became almost operatic. Like Willis wasn't being reported on for business ventures so much as being besieged by goons out of Die Hard. But Haley residents were mostly on Willis's side. He wasn't just snapping up properties, he was investing in the community too. Willis and Moore made donations to a local group advocating for victims of domestic violence. He donated to the local library and the Little League. One winter, when Haley seemed as though it might be overrun by snow, he donated snowblowers to the town. There was a real philanthropy in what Willis was doing. He was community-minded in many ways. He was very generous in many ways, and uh, I, I admired him for that. Haley was his hometown now, his escape. He could spend up to six months out of the year, or more, recuperating from the demands of stardom. No one in Haley asked Bruce Willis for his autograph. Sometimes city officials would float his name in political circles, Willis, they said, should consider running for mayor. Hey, there was precedent. Clint Eastwood was mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea in California in the 1980s. But Willis wasn't about to run for office. What he wanted was to build up Haley more discreetly. And that's what Wayne Adair, C.J. Karamarjan, and the town of Haley would soon realize. For Willis, there seemed to be appeal in treating Haley like a big, fresh, unpainted canvas. He was here for that final brushstroke. He had come to get away from it all, but in doing so, he realized he didn't necessarily want to get away from it all, just the parts he disliked. The unwanted attention, the insecure Hollywood types. At some point, Willis might have realized he could start painting that canvas in his own image. The Willis effect was coming, like a tidal wave. And with it would come some good things, like prosperity and culture and movie stars. But there was always a sense that what Bruce Willis giveth, Bruce Willis could also taketh away. 
1996, Willis opened an office and retail complex that he dubbed the E.G. Willis Building after his grandfather. Willis had bought the building, renovated it, and then leased out space to a jeweler, a furniture store, and others. It was a pretty standard developer move, nothing too flashy. Nonetheless, Entertainment Tonight came out to cover the grand opening. One of the existing occupants at the E.G. Willis building was the gang at the Wood River Journal. He bought the building uh, that we were in. We were in the building before he owned it. He purchased it, and we were not sure what was going to happen. Dad Gorham wrote an editorial about the odd situation. I remember I put a headline on the editorial that said, Bruce Willis stars as, quote, the landlord. And uh, we were trying to make a little bit light of the situation. When the lease for the journal expired, Willis's company didn't renew it. Wayne Adair, C.J. Caramargin, and the rest of the crew would have to move. We ultimately had to move, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was any uh, animosity toward us that, um, to uh, end our lease. Worked out fine because we got a better office and a bigger office uh, just half a block away, so all's well that end well. It was clear Willis wasn't overjoyed with the journal, but who could complain? When he did make a move, like with the E.G. Willis building, he put dozens of tradespeople to work for years at a time, carpenters, bricklayers. Haley was beginning to radiate with the glow of a movie star's affection. It was Hudson Hawk all over again, where Willis could have almost complete control. But thanks to his infamous press silence, no one knew what else Bruce Willis was planning for Haley, or that it would soon grow to include secret rooms, a clandestine security force, and car chases. Not movie car chases, but the real thing. This season on Haleywood, Bruce kind of thought that he would have the same effect as he would in New Jersey. And of course, that wasn't true at all. It was just a whole different world. Cowboy country, you know, you're getting out in the real West. He was flying a G2 arm in arm with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was also flying a G2. And he would fly in at two o'clock in the morning. And I mean, that woke you up. And there was this Victorian house Bruce Willis had bought for Demi Moore at that point to house her doll collection. And of course, Bruce would get up there once in a while with his harmonica and try to ruin it all. Uh, I'm just kidding, but uh, I'm not a big lover of that kind of music. Then something went sour, and it was like, uh, boy, if it goes sour with Willis, you're likely to lose. He looked roughed up, tore up, and he said they smashed my equipment, roughed me up, said they told me to get the hell out of town. Uh, Mr. Willis doesn't like you newspaper-type people around here. You don't want to come into Mr. Willis's town. Haleywood is hosted by Dana Schwartz. This show is written by Jake Rawson. Editing, sound design, and mixing by me, Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Mary Dew. Original music by Natasha Jacobs. Mixing by Jeremy Thaw. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson, Austin Thompson, and Marissa Brown. 
Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch, and our executive producer is Jason English. Special thanks to the people of Haley, Idaho, and all those who've shared their stories. Haleywood is a production of iHeartRadio. Until next time. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.